Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan and as always I will be your host for this episode. Now as I've said before, I do like to step outside the world of homicide and death from time to time and cover other forms of true crime. Today's episode covers a fraud that was perpetuated on the entire American public for over a decade and it involves one of the world's most iconic fast food franchises. But before we dive into the McMillian scam, let's get to the business side of things. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email me directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. If you can, please support the show via Patreon. Any donation level helps, and it will help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast and a thank-you message from the host. For no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Thanks so much. Without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. In 1940, two brothers, Dick and Mac McDonald, turned a failed attempt at making it big in Tinseltown into the start of an international fast food empire. Starting with a typical large menu restaurant with car hop service, They changed strategies in 1948 and poured what money they had left into a burger restaurant that specialized in 15-cent hamburgers that were made almost instantly and you could buy them by the bag. The idea took off and the brothers soon sold a bunch of other franchise locations in Southern California. By 1955, they had gained a partner in a man named Ray Kroc, who took his knowledge of milkshakes and incorporated into McDonald's franchise locations east of the Mississippi River. Americans were in love with McDonald's, and Ray Kroc established McDonald's System, Inc. in De Plaine, Illinois, in 1955. Six years later, he changed the company to McDonald's Corp. and bought the exclusive rights to the company from the McDonald's brothers for $2.7 million, which is roughly $25 million today. This was a nice return for the brothers, but in reality, it was quite the steal for Ray Kroc. By 1967, McDonald's had gone international, opening locations in Canada and Puerto Rico. By 1967, McDonald's had gone international, opening locations in Canada and Puerto Rico. The company continued to grow over the years, opening locations in Amsterdam, Munich, and Sydney in 1971, and Moscow in 1990. As the company grew, so did its marketing and promotions. In 1987, a brilliant idea was born. McDonald's would combine with the always popular board game Monopoly to create McDonald's Monopoly. The basis for the marketing campaign was that certain menu items would contain two pull-off game pieces that represented squares from the standard version of Monopoly. Some pieces would be instant win and participants could get a free drink, side, or sandwich. Larger prizes required you to find the missing piece of the Monopoly set of colors. The campaign was a huge success as people flocked to the already popular fast food chain to not only get their fix of greasy and salty food, but they thought they had a chance to win it big. But what no one knew was that the game was rigged, not by the company, but by one man who determined who the winners would be. He gave away and sold the winning game pieces for over a decade until he got lazy and a pattern emerged that exposed his multi-million dollar scam. This is the story of the McMillian scam. In 1987, a decision needed to be made. A campaign as large as the McDonald's Monopoly game was too big for the company to run internally, and in most places, it's illegal for companies to run their own sweepstakes. 
so they began looking for a company with the framework in place to run the campaign alongside the franchise. Simon Marketing's landing of the McDonald's campaign was an enormous win for the company. The promotional group was tasked with the day-to-day operations of the game to include the development and distribution of the game and the game pieces. Like any sweepstakes, the game was designed with a very small percentage of big winners and a very large percentage of small winners. The chance to win it big brought people in, and the small wins and the ongoing chance of the big win kept them coming back. In order for someone to win the larger prizes, they needed to collect all the game pieces that were assigned to the Monopoly board section of the game. This was based off the game of Monopoly where you can't build properties on a section of board until you own the Monopoly on that section or color. In order to control the number of large prizes that were available, Simon could produce any amount of part of that Monopoly set and severely limit just one section of the set. In the case of any three-piece Monopoly, two of the game pieces for that set could be produced in mass, and the true quote-unquote winning piece would be printed in limited quantities. In the case of the grand prize, which for years was $1 million, participants had to get two pieces of the Park Place slash Boardwalk set. Park Place was printed in mass, while only a few or one Boardwalk piece was printed. Truthfully, McDonald's might not have even had to pay out if someone pulled the quote-unquote winning piece and didn't realize it, because they could assume it was one of the mass quantity pieces and toss it out and no one would be able to claim the prize. Or someone could throw away one of the winning pieces without even pulling it off if they weren't playing the game. And this was actually when I was doing the research for this. We'll eventually get to what this scam cost McDonald's overall, but there was some pretty crazy numbers too about how many unclaimed prizes, whether it be physical prizes, because sometimes the physical prize was a vehicle or you know some, something along those lines. And if you're not really playing the game, let's say you're just driving on a road trip and you stop at McDonald's and McDonald's Monopoly happens to be going on. If you don't normally eat at McDonald's, which I don't, but... I will on you know a road trip or if I absolutely need to grab something really quick. Uh, I try to avoid fast food in general, but with three boys, uh, oftentimes when I'm on a road trip with them, you know it's easier to to just stop real quick and grab something. Although with the prices of fast food nowadays, it's getting to be less and less <laughs> enticing to do so. But um, if you're somebody like me who maybe eats fast food. A few times a year, if I happen to across McDonald's when this Monopoly promotion is going on, again, maybe I pull the the pieces to see if there's some type of an instant win on there, a, a free drink or a large fries to add to the order or whatever it might be. But let's say I pull the boardwalk piece, maybe maybe I'd be a little more inquisitive because it's a $1 million piece, but I also might assume that because this is the only time I've been to McDonald's, I must have pulled one of the ones they print out in mass, and I could end up just throwing it away. And if I did that, that means nobody's ever going to win the, the million dollar piece. And as we're going to find out, that's pretty impossible during this time period at least, uh, uh, during the McMillian scam for somebody to unknowingly pull the piece. But after the scam, this is, I think, when some of the research showed that 
the winning when the winning pieces were out there uh, a lot of them went unclaimed and, and again some people might not even pull the pieces off they just either don't care they're not paying attention whatever it might be for all I know employees could be throwing away some of the if a fry thing gets dropped on the floor or something like that and they just end up throwing that fry sleeve away that happens to have game pieces on there maybe the winning pieces on there but yeah it's there's no guarantee that every winning piece if it was out in mass circulation was even going to get claimed and and it definitely seems from the research that that was the case where a lot of them were not claimed but to control the flow of the winning pieces it was decided they weren't going to be sent out as part of the mass production distribution McDonald's worried that without proper tracking, someone in part of the distribution process could, could grab one of the winning pieces before it ever made it to the customers. So this is, again, their, their concern is that person who's making minimum wage or near minimum wage, if they're seeing these winning game pieces go by as a part of the distribution process or they're somehow having access to these as just a part or e or even the the fast food workers themselves if they're sitting at McDonald's and they're bored and they're this is the late 80s early 90s they're making minimum wage which is you know, three four bucks an hour whatever it was back then I think my first job was actually what's something called corn detasseling where you pull the top of the corn off day after day in farm fields it was not a lot of fun and uh, very hot, very dirty, uh, but it was, I think I was getting paid something like four bucks an hour or something like that for it. This was 1994-ish, 95-ish, somewhere around there. So around the same time that this, this scam is going to start. So again, if you're working at McDonald's at that time, flipping burgers for four dollars an hour there's a lot of temptation there that if you're gonna have a million dollar piece potentially come through your store just in regular distribution the last thing mcdonald's wanted was a whole bunch of these minimum wage workers to be just ripping off game pieces to see if if they can you know make it big while they're at work so the idea was they're going to send out all of the in small instant wins the smaller prizes all of those regularly produced mass produced game pieces would just go out through normal distribution but the pieces that made the large prize sets so the boardwalks or the third piece of of one of the green or yellow monopoly sets i think that that was a pretty big prize as well that they were printed in very limited quantities and that they would have somebody that would can control it so the workaround was to employ Simon Marketing's head of security, Jerome Jacobson, to control the distribution. Jacobson had been a police officer in Florida before injuring his wrist and taking an early retirement and moving to Georgia to pursue a secondary career in security. Initially, he took the job seriously and ran tight security protocols to include checking the shoes of delivery drivers for the pieces to ensure they hadn't taken any winning pieces out of circulation. But an error in the security procedures soon brought temptation before Jerome, and he quickly took a bite from the forbidden fruit. The winning pieces were technically printed as a one-piece sticker. That 
sticker was supposed to be applied to the containers for certain menu items. So large drink cups, large fry containers, Big Mac boxes, etc. Each sticker had two perforated game pieces that would be pulled off by the participant and allowed them then to play the game. As I said before, small winners went out into normal distribution and landed on random items to be claimed by the participants. These small winners included those instant prizes such as free food or some of the lower end winnings. The largest prizes were meant to be shipped to Jacobson in tamper-proof packaging so they could not be manipulated before delivery. But a mistake by the supplier meant the tamper seals and stickers were sent separately, so Jacobson could tamper with the stickers and then place whatever stickers he wanted into a container with the tamper-proof sealing on afterwards while holding on to the large prize winners. Now to try to prevent this, there was actually a a auditor that would watch him at all times. It was a female auditor that was basically a sign from the second that the large prize stickers arrived at his office. This female auditor was supposed to monitor all of the stuff that he was doing in regards to these. So there was kind of a backup checks and balances, but he quickly realized she couldn't follow him into the bathroom. So when he got the winning pieces, he would go into the bathroom removing the large winner stickers from the package and replace them with other stickers and then return and seal the container in front of the auditor. So to the auditor and everyone else, it appeared things were operating as they were supposed to and the game was going to be fair for all who played it. And this was except the Canadians. And this is for some reason McDonald's decreed that none of the large winning pieces were to be sent to Canada. And then Jacobson would use this fact later to try to justify his actions, despite the fact that he controlled basically where the winning pieces were supposed to go, but he never took them to Canada. And I was a little confused by this process. I was, I was trying to picture in my head, first off, this entire being shipped, this, the winning stickers and the, the tamper-proof stickers being shipped separately in the first place. You think somebody would have recognize that that was a weakness inherent in the system, that these things should have been sent to Jacobson, already pre-sealed in tamper-proof packaging, so that basically from the second he receives them, his only job was to basically, I shouldn't say his only job, his job was to receive them, and then his job was to make sure that they were delivered. Basically, McDonald's picked where these winners were supposed to go, or at least the, the company was supposed to distribute them evenly across the United States. And as I said, for some reason, they maybe it's because of sweepstake rules in Canada or some type of illegality is the only thing I can think of. Uh, they didn't want these winning stickers, the, the big winners, going to Canada. Uh, so they were, But they were supposed to be distributed amongst the United States. And, and again, I'm not 100% sure if that meant that Jacobson was supposed to hand deliver them to certain restaurants and then basically put them onto some type of a, a piece in the back. So if you were buying your Big Mac or fries or, or drink, you would have no idea. But the day that he happens to visit, he basically gets to pick, okay, I'm going to put this winning piece on this large fry container. And then again, from the front side of the restaurant, reordering your food, you see nothing different. But in the back, they would know, hey, we just put a winning ticket on this 
large fry container in New Jersey or whatever it might be. So again, I don't know how specific these places were or if this was just kind of given carte blanche to Jacobson to pick where he wanted to distribute these. But ultimately, that's the other thing that's confusing is you would think if they're controlling, they're saying these can't go to Canada, he must have had some freedom. Otherwise, if they're saying, hey, we need a winner in California, we need a winner in Chicago, we need a winner in the New York area, these major markets or whatever it might be, you think his scheme wouldn't work out because he's going to hand select these winning pieces to go to certain places. And if it's not the places where corporate wanted them, you think they would have caught on pretty quickly that he wasn't following along with the plan. So again, there's a lot of moving parts that I really didn't understand about this, but ultimately because of this tamper sticker mistake, whatever you want to call it, he's able to hand select out these large prizes, pull them out of circulation, replace them with smaller prizes or non-winners that get sent out to, to places where they're supposed to be the big wins. And in reality, uh, he's again, he's getting to, to pick who holds on to these winning game pieces. And it was said he didn't start his scheme right away. And in fact, despite the game started in 1987, it, he didn't steal his first piece until 1989. And in this case, he removed a $25,000 winning sticker from a shipment and gave it to his brother. And this is because obviously Jacobson couldn't turn the winning piece in himself, but his brother was able to cash in the prize without suspicion. And as Jacobson realized he would never be able to cash the pieces in himself, he quickly concocted a plan to sell them for a portion of their cash value. By 1995, the popularity of the game and the success of the campaign had sent the prize money through the roof. The grand prize was now $1 million, and there were several multi-hundred thousand dollar prizes each year. Jacobson began by mainly using his family and close friends to launder the stolen game pieces. He sold a winning piece worth $200,000 to his nephew and another one to his butcher, each for $45,000 cash. A good but illegal deal for all parties, but then a chance encounter with a New York mobster while at the Atlanta airport changed the game, pun intended, for Jacobson. And so he's, again, he, he's checking out, he's basically wading into those waters. If he, his, his brother cashes in this $25,000 winner, is anybody going to come asking questions, looking to see there's a connection it's it's his brother assuming they had the same last name like i said is, is anybody gonna is anybody gonna question where this came from because they can just say after one they could say yeah my brother eats at mcdonald's he's just really lucky he pulled the 25 it wasn't the grand prize it wasn't the max prize so it was definitely testing the waters see if anybody asking questions and from there then he's able to branch out start selling them to other people that aren't as connected so maybe his nephew doesn't have the same last name doesn't live in the same area his butcher clearly isn't related to him and nobody's going to be able to identify his butcher just just through the winnings themselves at that point without looking any closer uh, but eventually he's going to run out of people and geographically he has to spread it out too and we'll talk about that later but he can't have 
everybody in his town and his neighborhood claiming these large prizes. They're supposed to be spread out all, all across the country. So at some point, he's got to have help with this process. As I mentioned, Jacobson needed to be careful about selling the pieces to those close to him via relation and proximity, as too many winners with the same last name or in the same general area would raise alarms. In 1995, he stole the $1 million winning piece, but sent it in an anonymous letter to St. Jude's Research Hospital as a quote-unquote gift from the winner. Now, the game did have rules against gifting winnings, but made an exception for this case. It was later hypothesized Jacobson couldn't find a buyer willing to risk the scrutiny for the prize, or maybe he had fears about it being traced back to him, and so he mailed it. And there's also belief that he knew eventually he would get caught, and he hoped the quote-unquote donation would buy him some goodwill down the road. So I think it's a combination of all of these things. He probably stole the million dollar piece and then quickly realized he needed to have somebody that he could really trust because at this point he's already committed felony fraud. And if he sells this million dollar piece to the wrong person who folds under any amount of pressure or asking questions about where they got this winning piece from, he's going to be dead to rights for any investigators at that point. So if he can't find somebody far enough away from him, not connected enough to him, he's basically holding on to the million dollar piece, but he has to get it out into circulation too. It, it can't be, I mean, I guess he could say that somebody must have just pulled it and not, not claimed it, but he's the one responsible for distributing it. And it was supposed to be kind of a pretty big deal when this person pulled this million dollar piece off. So I have to imagine that he quickly realized that by holding on to this piece, he got, was in trouble. By selling it to the wrong person, he was in trouble. So the only way that he could circumvent the system and keep anybody from asking too many questions is to pretend like somebody pulled this, but then felt the need to donate it to the hospital. So, and, and again, maybe that was with some foresight to, hey, if I do get caught, I'm going to say, look, I could have sold this million dollar piece, but I, I, I donated it. I mean, that I'm a good guy, right? I, you know, I'm just saying that's, that was probably going through his mind at some point too, that, that that would mitigate some of the negative image stuff that he's going to face down the road. But as I said before, that chance meeting at the Atlanta airport introduced him to a man named Gennaro Colombo. And Gennaro ran an underground gambling ring and was supposed to have ties to the New York Mafia. And suddenly Jacobson had a new partner. J Gennaro had all types of money laundering connections that were more than happy to pay Jacobson cash for larger prizes and it would be difficult to trace those winners back to Jacobson. And this Gennaro guy, he's a from all that I read, he's a pretty interesting character. Now, some people would say he was a pretty low-level criminal that ran some gambling rackets. You're thinking you know, East Coast, whether it's just a bookie running some type of a sports book or whether he ran you know, some illegal poker games or whatever it might be. So depending on which source you read, this guy's either tied into this major crime family in New York or New Jersey area or... You know, he's just this criminal that happens to have an Italian name that 
acts like he's part of the mafia. So he, in, the reality could be one end or the other or anywhere in between. Uh, but ultimately, he does have seedy connections with other criminals that, again, are willing to find ways to turn these winning game pieces that are instant cash forever turns them in and they're selling them for a fraction of the 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 prize money it's pure profit forever selling the pieces because it costs them nothing to get it um i guess other than their their soul or their morals and and risking eventual jail time but from a financial standpoint there's no cost on the front end so whatever you sell this piece for that's pure profit and then whoever on the back end is claiming that prize the prize minus taxes minus whatever you pay for for it that's pure profit for that person so there was actually i think a lot of cases where jacobson was selling it to Gennaro or eventually this other guy that he meets and then they are then turning around and selling it to a third party that is going to turn around and sell this game piece to a quote-unquote winner, creating further separation between the Jacobson and the person claiming the prize, those insulating kind of levels between the two. But everybody's making money in the process. Jacobson, let's say it's a $200,000 piece. He sells it for $45,000. The next person who pays $45,000 sells it for $80,000 and then the person cashes it in for 200 and after taxes they're seeing you know, 130, 140 from that. They're still clearing 50, 60,000 dollars. Everybody's making money in the process. And so again, with this connection to Gennaro, he now has connections to a bunch of people that are either willing to buy the tickets or willing and claim them or buy the pieces and turn around and sell them again. And just to show how bold they were, Jacobson actually gave Gennaro the winning piece for a 1995 Dodge Viper. And Gennaro actually appeared in a TV ad for the promotional campaign for his quote unquote win. And as I mentioned, Gennaro introduced Jacobson to several other people, and this became his main way of profiting off the stolen winning pieces. It was Gennaro's father-in-law that won the $1 million prize in 1996, and many others related to Jacobson and Gennaro cashed in big that year. And Gennaro died in a car accident in 1998, and Jacobson continued to use Gennaro's friends and relatives, such as a gambler and ex-con from Florida named Andrew Glom. In total, between 1995 through 2000, it is estimated that Jacobson stole or gave away roughly $24 million worth of cash and prizes. And for those few years, he managed to keep suspicions at bay by making sure that people didn't claim their prizes in the same area. But in 2000, an anonymous tip to the FBI told them to look closer at the 1995 and 1996 winnings by Gennaro Colombo and his father-in-law, William Fisher. And... After writing this, I was uh, I saw an article that I hadn't seen. Uh, I was just doing some last-minute research on the case, and this article seemed to make it seem. Uh, apparently, there's a documentary out on this uh, that was put out. I think it was on HBO, and, and apparently, Ben Affleck and Matt Damon are bought the rights to make a movie about the this whole scheme, this whole fraud. So there's, there's kind of this renewed interest out there right now about this case. And so there's 
a bunch of new articles that came out and, and apparently there's again this documentary talks about some stuff so the one article that i read i don't know if it was based off the documentary if people have seen it maybe you know they could they could speak to it but it sounds as if kind of the downfall of this was somebody in the colombo family um and i don't mean that by mafia family i mean as in a relative they were there's a child custody issue or something along those lines and they basically saw an opportunity to expose their criminal relatives to better their custody case and that, that's often the downfall of a lot of things like this and basically told the fbi hey why don't you look at this person for their winnings but regardless of who turned this all in this was the first domino to bring this entire scam down. The FBI quickly looked into the case and found that Fisher had driven to New Hampshire to claim his prize, but they determined he had no ties to New Hampshire and he lived in Jacksonville, Florida, a stone's throw away from several other high-profile winners. With the spotlight on the Jacksonville area, the FBI learned that Fisher and his family members had claimed a total of three $1 million prizes and the Dodge Viper. And statistically, the odds of this were impossible, and the FBI knew their anonymous tipster was onto something. Other big prize winners were tracked down, and many came clean, stating they purchased the winning tickets from either Jacobson or somebody Jacobson sold the piece to. And sometimes the pieces were sold by Jacobson, then sold again, as I mentioned, with the seller doubling their investment and the winner still made thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars when they claimed their prize. And I did read in another article, again, after I wrote this, that some of these quote-unquote prize winners were threatened by either Gennaro or some of these other uh, people involved in the scheme. Uh, one woman said she was made to take out a mortgage on her house to come up with the cash she needed to pay for uh, the winning piece. Uh, they tended to prey on people who were in you know, serious financial situations where they needed a, a quick infusion of cash. And I get it. I, I understand these these desperate people made some mistakes and, and the articles definitely you know these people said it's just one of those things that they were stressed they were desperate for money they made a mistake and we'll talk about some of the punishments later on for for their involvements but it definitely seemed as if the people who made the most money who took the most advantage of this were not necessarily some of these desperate for money people that were actually claiming the prizes it was jacobson and, and the the quote-unquote middlemen and middlewomen that were that were the ones not claiming the prizes but just making cash off selling the pieces and despite their efforts to kind of spread this out the the winners that became subject to the most investigation were ones that were clustered as living in the american southeast mainly in georgia and florida and again, at surface level, Jacobson and, and these other guys, they tried to spread out these winners, whether it was his, you know, Gennaro's father-in-law driving to New Hampshire and, and claiming to have gotten the winning piece off of something he bought at a McDonald's in New Hampshire. And at surface level, it's going to look 
like the game is being played as it's supposed to. You got winners all over the place. I think they were flying or telling people to drive to different locations in the country before they claimed these big prizes. And at surface level, again, this looks not suspicious at all. But as soon as they all put these home addresses for all these people into a, a system, they quickly realize all these people are clustered in these areas around Georgia where Jacobson lives, around Florida where this General Colombo's family, this Jacksonville area where they lived. Uh, there was another guy that we'll talk about here in a second that was from Florida. Uh, so they're selling... You know, people are, are claiming these pieces all across the country, but they're all living in the same area. The McDonald's fully cooperated with the investigation, and in 2001, despite knowing their game was faulty, they went along with the FBI's request to operate the game as normal. The FBI had secured wiretaps for Jacobson's phone and had turned several suspects into informants for charges being reduced or dropped. And in August of 2001, the FBI arrested Jacobson and seven of his closest accomplices after they stole and distributed large prizes from the 2001 campaign. And they were charged with felony conspiracy to commit mail fraud. And, and this is where, as I mentioned, there's going to be some people who just, they're on the receiving end of these game prizes. Yes, they're making mistakes by buying these game pieces to turn around and, and make some money. But usually these are single parents or people in a tough financial situation and this is a one-time you know chance for them to get out of a, a bad financial situation or whatever it might be and these are the people that likely when the fbi started looking at where these winners were located and if you lived in the suspicious area where they think these pieces are being sold i'm sure the fbi agents were knocking on people's doors saying hey we know you didn't just pull that winning game piece. Where did you get it from? And if they were smart, they'd play along with the FBI investigation and likely turned, you know, state's evidence. They're willing to come testify saying, I you know, purchased this game piece instead of sitting there saying, I don't know what you're talking about. Talk to my lawyer. I'm not saying anything. If you cooperate with their investigation and you're one of the people at the very bottom of this food chain of, of, of the, the process, there's a good chance that either the federal prosecutors are going to say, we won't charge you or we'll charge you with some lesser crime that you're not going to see any jail time if you if you cooperate with the investigation so once the fbi got their teeth into this investigation it didn't take them long because there's very little loyalty between the people receiving these cash payouts from these game prizes and jacobson and his associates it's again it's a one-time deal between these people that they don't even know so when they're threatened with jail or turning on Jacobson and his associates, I'm guessing the majority of them turned rather quickly. And so by 2001, the FBI is all ready to go. They've got like I said, wiretaps on Jacobson's phone. They've, they're going to have surveillance on him. They're going to have these people in place on the low end if they're... Because likely what's going to happen is they're going to try to sell these game pieces to people they've sold them to before but have somebody else claim the prize whatever it might be but they're going to have everything from the top of this pyramid all the way down to the bottom covered when the 2001 monopoly campaign begins and that 
instead of just relying on these past winners and their statements, their testimonies, they're going to get all the evidence they need to, to charge this guy and, and take a trial if need be. And so after the arrest of Jacobson and his associates, they found over 50 people who had knowingly participated in the scheme to some degree. And the trial for Jacobson and some of his closest associates began on Monday, September 10th, 2001. And there had been a great deal of media buildup to the trial because of both the popularity of the, the fast food franchise and this Monopoly game campaign. But the events of the following day, September 11th, 2001, and the aftermath buried the trial in the eyes of the American public. And when the trial resumed, the media was still focused on 9-11, which was obviously rightfully so, and Jacobson quietly accepted his sentence in 2003. He was sent off to serve 37 months in federal prison and ordered to pay more than $12.5 million in restitution. And he's probably, I mean, obviously he's the mastermind of this, uh, So, he, but he's probably going to be the person that faces the stiffest penalties in terms of financial because yes he sold sold or stole 24 million dollars in game pieces but he it, he seemed to be selling them at about a quarter of their value and then in the one case he he gave away the one to St. Jude's so if you take a quarter of say even if he had made money on the St. Jude's ones. A, qu a quarter of the twenty-four million is only six million dollars. Only, only six. But his his restitution is probably close to twice, if not more, than than what he made uh, during this scheme. So, you know, and maybe I didn't have access to all the financial records. Maybe the the federal prosecutors got his, all of his bank accounts and and maybe he did make 12.5 million in a scheme and that's where that number came from or maybe like the federal government does or or like prosecutors like to do they they made it such a, a damaging amount that it would deter people from trying this again that if that if you're the kingpin they don't want you to walk away having either made money or breaking even uh, they want to make it so that the message is sent loud and clear you do this it is going to cost you uh, in the long run now some of jacobson's closest associates including his nephew mark schwartz and the florida con man andrew glom each got over a year in prison the only winner from this whole scheme appeared to be william fisher he was only sentenced to three years of probation in order to pay three hundred thousand dollars in restitution and that's less than half of what he would have made after taxes from his fraudulent win. So the further away you get from the kingpin of this, obviously the the time in jail was less, but it just kind of shocked me that I'm guessing maybe this William Fisher also made some type of a deal with prosecutors to lower both his his prison time, and in this case, it does not like he got any prison time. He had three years of probation and then lower his fine down to $300,000 because my guess after taxes, you're gonna get about $600,000 from that million dollar win. He's only paying 300,000 and I don't know that he even paid for the ticket. I'm, I'm guessing he had to pay something to Jacobson, but again, it, it definitely seems like he either at the very least broke even or he actually got to keep some money from his win, which Again, it doesn't seem like that's uh, something you want to have if you're looking to deter people from doing this.
and McDonald's is fast to go into damage control mode after news broke that its 14-year-old game had been rigged for the majority of its inception. They quickly introduced a new game with $10 million in prizes to be shared amongst 55 random winners. They cut ties with Simon Marketing, but by doing so they breached their contract with them and were forced to pay an additional $17 million for breach of contract. And despite the settlement, Simon Marketing never recovered from the damage done by Jacobson and dissolved in 2002. And this is what kind of shocked me about this story is I can't imagine writing or agreeing to any type of a contract that's this large between two companies without having some type of fail-safe built into it where if something like this were to happen, if one or both of the companies are found to be fraudulent, that it doesn't nullify the contract. It just absolutely shocked me that McDonald's, on top of all the PR hit they took and the money that, I mean, the the damage in court for the breach of contract was $7 million more than they even came out and said that they would pay in a new game to, to try to make amends with their the with their winners so and to keep in mind too mcdonald's wasn't as far as we know aware of this fraud at all so they paid out the 24 million dollars in prizes it's not like they got away with not paying the prizes they paid those prizes if those winners were real so so they're hit with 24 million dollars which was part what they planned to spend on the campaign then they're hit with the ten million dollars in, in makeup for PR, and then they're hit with the seventeen million dollars for breaching the contract with a company that's ultimately responsible for this entire fiasco and mess in the first place. But McDonald's did decide to continue running the promotion after 2012, with their then CEO Jack Greenberg stating they were committed to giving every customer a chance to win all of the money that was stolen by this criminal ring. The Monopoly game eventually died out in the U.S., but it remains a popular campaign in the United Kingdom. And maybe, I know I've got a bunch of listeners in the United Kingdom. Uh, from what I could tell, they kept it going in the U.K. Uh, it looked like there were some issues with the 2020 COVID year, and it, they might have been trying to get rid of it after that. But from what I can tell, I think both I think Canada had it up until 2020. The COVID year, I think the last year I could find any prizes or anything for Canada was 2019. UK, though, it seemed like it, it's still going strong there. And, and I, I could be wrong, but that's just based off what I could find on, on the internet. Now, the last Monopoly game in the U.S., from what I could tell, was 2014. And they changed over to this Game Time Gold, uh, which was a partnership they had with the NFL where you would it was the same idea the same premise but instead of using monopoly they were using nfl football teams and, and the same instant prize and large prize stuff uh, but from what i could tell that didn't last too long and so i kind of was curious because this was such a popular thing i mean i can remember when each time the monopoly quote-unquote season would begin at mcdonald's there's commercials on tv there was you know, big signs outside all the McDonald's that Monopoly is back and 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 that stuff, and so I was kind of curious because that definitely seemed to be a big driving factor for their sales, and so I figured what what happened to their revenue after they got rid of 
the Monopoly game, and after reaching a record high revenue of $28 billion in 2014, the company dropped a staggering $7 billion in revenue over the next five years. And I purposely didn't include the COVID years because those were even lower, but if you get rid of the COVID years, even pre-COVID, uh, the company was sitting at just over $21 billion. So from getting rid of the Monopoly game going into COVID, the company lost 25% of its revenue. And again, the industry claims that this is because there was more fast food competition and a change in eating habits was responsible for the change in revenue. But I just find it odd that the massive drop also occurred after the abandonment of one of its most popular, albeit unfair, campaigns for over 20 years. Uh, McDonald's has recovered half of its revenue losses since the 2014, so maybe someday in the future we'll see Monopoly return, and hopefully without the fraud this time. And it'll be interesting to see with the documentary on HBO if the movie is ever made, if that would actually kind of reinvigorate the Monopoly's campaign if McDonald's were to try to kind of jumpstart revenue again off of people remembering how much fun it was to play the game and this time knowing that it shouldn't be rigged. Uh, maybe, the, like I said, the, the game might come back if, if there's enough popularity around the idea of playing it, but Again, I don't know if McDonald's would take that risk considering that the popularity of the game would be centered around the, the fact that it was fraudulent for so many years. But but again, that's the case of the McMillian scam. Um, thank you guys for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions at gmail.com. You can also find me at True Blue Crime Productions on Facebook and support me via Patreon at True Blue Crime Productions. Uh, I did just receive a request for uh, a case that I'm looking at working. I don't normally take cases that are really old just because they're hard to research. Uh, but I've, it's a case I think I'm going to cover in my 100th episode. Uh, it's one I've thought about covering. And so with the, the request made, I'm definitely going to pencil that one in now for the 100th episode. Uh, but like I said, feel free to write me, guys. I, I write people back uh, if they write me uh, with, like I said, whether it be compliments, complaints, suggestions, whatever it might be. Uh, same thing with Facebook. People message me on there, and I, I reply to them. And uh, like I said, it just it's, it's nice to engage with the listeners, have a conversation about whether it be true crime or whether a case that they want to hear covered at some point. I've kind of covered most of the major solved cases that I that I really had in my lineup. I definitely have a bullpen still of cases that I'm going to work from time to time, but it's nice sometimes to just do a case that I either haven't heard of before or there's kind of a, a twist to it, but again, something that I, I wouldn't have known before I started researching it. So I said, reach out to me on email, um, send me those those case requests, uh, the information, anything like that. And uh, I will definitely do what I can for you guys. So that's it for today, guys. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Goodbye.